Tonight's lecture is on transparency and the family court and throwing open to public and professional dates whether or not we've got the balance right. Um, the questions I'm going to be exploring are these. What does the child, who does the child's story belong to? Does it belong to the child, the family, society, in the press? What do the public know about the way family courts uh, make their decisions? Where and how do we draw the line between confidentiality and accessibility? And are we deaf in the family courts to the howls of outrage about secret courts and injustice that bleed through into public consciousness? And then finally, I think the most significant point, which is, does the family justice system risk falling into disrepute if it doesn't constructively engage with the public and press? This lecture, amongst many, has reminded me about why I wanted to become a professor of Gresham, because in terms of presenting and preparing this lecture, I've had to go right back to basics. I've had to think about the way I practice. I'd like to think about how I've learned to practice. And in the course of preparing it, I have learned how many barriers I have personally and professionally put up to positively looking to see whether or not we are right to defend the current balance of confidentiality in the family justice system. Why do I say that? Well, I start off uh, with a history lesson. And these are my rose-tinted spectacles. Because I've been a barrister for 32 years, and I've been a specialist child protection barrister for around about 25 of them. I can probably count them by the number of wrinkles I've got on my face, every line earned um, in the family division. And when I started to practice, social media was something you wrapped up your fish and chips in. It was not there at the click of your fingers with a world wide web to access, which made everyone an expert. When I started practicing, what parents knew about what was to face them in court came from two sources. It came either from family and friends who trod that path before, or from qualified solicitors and barristers that told them what to expect. When the judge pronounced his judgment, it wasn't necessarily written down. It certainly wasn't reported. It certainly wasn't um, covered within um, any of the online accessibility medias that we have now. And it was likely to sound like Jabberwocky, quite frankly. Because when a judge is delivering their judgment in court, the person who's hanging on to every word because the answer determines whether or not they can keep their child or not is in such a state of tension and anxiety that the likelihood of them being able to understand 10 and 10 equals 20 is pretty limited. The likelihood of them being able to take in a judgment which, in order to be unappealable, sets out all of the background facts, the law, and then comes to its conclusions, will have lost them by about the first 30 seconds. And so, in my day, the way in which parents, because I predominantly act for parents, as by now you will know, will come to understand what the judge had decided, and then why the judge had decided, would be through the skills of the advocate that then had represented them. And what happens now? We, we now have a media which talks about judges potentially as being enemies of the people. But when I started off, and up until relatively few years ago, judges expected to be respected. That was a given because of their status in society and because of the importance of the job they're doing. So what do I see over the course of the last few years compared to that picture? Well, that being over a quarter of a century ago, obviously. Um, which is social media has effectively crashed through 
all of those barriers to respectability, to understanding, to the divide between then and us, which means that now, with the media on tap at a single button, you don't even have to be in front of a laptop. You've simply got it there on your mobile phone. You have got thousands of voices to tap into. And what the person tapping into those voices doesn't know is how qualified those people are to give the opinions they do. And when someone is in acute distress, the last thing they want to hear is hard news. The one thing they are going to want to hear is it's all a hideous mistake. And that then binds up a whole system of, I'm wrong to be here, there's nothing I need to account for. The whole system is wrong, which leads to the type of social media battles and the difficulty engaging my clients now that I don't think I had five or ten years ago. And the other crucial difference is that we had LASPO. This is an act that I refer to a number of times, the Legal Aid Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act. Because up until then, you were likely, even in private law proceedings, particularly in private law proceedings, to be entitled to qualified legal advice if you were going to court for a matter, for example, uh, to do with uh, the determination of your child's residence on contact. But there have been drastic changes to that eligibility. And as a consequence, whereas people used to go to court armed with a barrister or a solicitor, now they go armed with a carrier bag full of various case notes they've acquired, but mainly full of the derivatives of their life, which they expect the judge to sort out. And when litigants in person go to court, the mysticism of it is reduced. It becomes the same as going to a social service office. There's no longer a barrier between the judge and the, and the parent. The parent has to negotiate directly with the other side and with the judge. So where is that authority? Where is, that, where is the focus of that large insignia, the Queen's symbol that sits behind every single courtroom, behind every single judge? Where is that authority gone when, in fact, the person who's having to argue their case, it's another person in a suit? And that, I think, has been one of the other components that's meant that there is less respect now given automatically to both those who work in the courts and those who deliberate and deliver justice um, within it. And we can't ignore that. Lucy Reed, um, uh, a, a professional at the bar who carries a huge amount of respect, not simply for the work she does, but the degree to which she tries to disseminate her knowledge on the web, had this to say. The reality is that our clients are heavily influenced by what they read on social media, in newspapers, and what they're told by friends or supporters and in their Facebook feeds. When we give advice to clients, we are one voice competing on a trading floor, and almost every other voice is offering a, most, a more immediately compelling narrative than ours. And that's something we have to engage with. So, secrecy or privacy? Whose story is it? Family courts hear matters in private. You'll see the words in chambers if you ever go along to uh, the Royal Division and you look to see which matters you can go into or not. That means the only people allowed in the court are the professionals involved and the parties. The public are not admitted. Since 2009, accredited press have been able to enter, um, but what they can report about the case is highly restricted. And why is this the case? Well, the starting point is, so far as the family courts are concerned, that the welfare of the child is the guiding principle. 
and the court will be failing of its duty if, in the course of trying to decide if a child has been harmed, it itself, through its process, caused harm to that child, which would linger long after the judge had reached his conclusion. When we do these cases in the family courts, we trespass into the most intimate details of people's lives, to a degree which they never thought would ever be open to speculation by anyone, let alone by professionals, let alone by a judge. We read text exchanges, we read emails, we read Facebook posts, we see arguments screaming across the media, used to deploy to cross-examine the parents. We see images we wish we hadn't seen. And if we think about the consequences of that information becoming public for the child, we cannot simply say the court should be open to the public and the press without considering who stands to lose by that um, open access policy. In order to shake you up, really, in order to make those who in previous lectures have shouted out secret justice to me, I just want to bring home to you the type of things that we have to explore in the courts that we litigate in. I'm not going to read this out too fast because I don't think this should be in the public domain too much, but I've taken the details of this case and the couples other to follow because they are out in published judgments on Bailey, uh, which is the British and Irish legal um, legislation resource, which is an online library which all of you can access. So just think and look at that for the moment and I'll read out a little bit of the detail. Mr. X sexually abused G and B for a period of years up until July 13, in the case of G, uh, February 14. In the case of B, the abuse occurs in the home and at Mr. C's workplace. It escalated from touching the children's private parts to making them touch his private parts, to fellating B, forcing B to fellate him, to attempted rape and rape of G, and attempted buggery of B, and finally making the children perform sex acts on another. The children were forced to take part in these activities and were reduced to silence by Mr. C's threats about the consequences of speaking out. Another case. PH sexually assaulted C and raped her when some of her siblings were in the home. On an occasion, he used a knife to cut her clothes off, tied her to the bed. The mother returned home after this event C told her mother after the event and her mother did not believe her or take any steps in response. The child was left in that situation. Now, why am I reading those out to you? And from previous lectures, you'll know I don't do this for titillation. It is because when accusations of secret justice are thrown at me and my colleagues in the justice, the voice that's silent in those that, sit, that come out with it almost as a Pavlovian response forget that the stories we are talking about, the histories that we are talking about, the reason why we are in the family court at all is because there is an allegation a child has been harmed. And how often when you hear in the press or you see the shouts and the placards outside, for example, a hospital or outside the family court, how often do you see the children who are the subject of the proceedings claiming that their rights have been abused? by virtue of no one being allowed in court. So when, in the course of this lecture, you are thinking about an open book versus what the story is to be told, then I'd really like you to think about where the balance of that lies. What value is it to you, as a member of the public, going into a family court to hear those stories told? What do you do it for? For how long are you going to be interested in the case that you have heard? Compare that to the child, whose life story it is, whose history has to be repeated to therapists, and who, 
if she's given, or he and she is given evidence in court, then has to contemplate leaving that courtroom and fearing whether or not everyone in a street, in a school, in a classroom knows about what has happened, and then they are the ones that are vilified and mocked and isolated. So rather than in these lectures and in previous, shout out about secret courts, think about why we are having the system of inquiry at all. And when we talk about transparency, it's a phrase we talk about a lot, I'd like you to think about what we mean by transparency. When we talk about it, the public claim that there is a right for them to know. They have a right to know what's going on in family courts and they want to engage about that, but the, as I said, the issue missing is the child's voice. As a barrister, I inherit cases which live with me long after I've closed the pages and sent the files back to the solicitor. I read about children who've been found in squalor, surrounded by feces, their own and dogs, found eating it, oblivious to a dead baby in a pulled out drawer beside them. I read images and see images of children who've been horrifically physically abused. When I'm doing a case involving a dead child, I look at pictures that take, through pathological pictures, the image of that child whole through to a child who's been segmented. Why should any of that material be available to the public without proper consideration? I'm not saying it shouldn't be. When I get to the end of my lecture, you'll see that I raise serious question marks. But I am really focusing, I hope, your minds on what the content of the type of cases are that we do in the family justice system. So what does transparency mean? Well, not for the first time in this lecture, and indeed in the notes which accompany it, um, do I look to the Transparency Project for guidance and advice, because they, for me, are one of the go-to resources, bridging the gap between what we do in court as professional lawyers and what we seek to explain to the public about what we do. And from them, I borrowed this summary. Transparency is about seeing and understanding how things work. For example, whether hearings and court documents should be public or private, whether court cases should be reported in the media or on social media, how law and procedure is made clear for the people whose lives may be affected by it, how a family is helped in understanding why and how a decision has been arrived at, and what available of information is there out there to see how the system works. Now, I think that's a great definition. I think that's a very comprehensive definition. But actually, I don't think that's a definition of transparency that the public understand and want. To the public, I think transparency means being able to be in court. I think it means listening to the evidence and then being able to discuss it outside court. I think it means if they're not there, they want the press to be there as their eyes and ears, and then when the press come out of court, they can report what they have heard at the time they hear it, and they can report on the decision and their views on it. So when we are talking about transparency, I think there's a danger that we become too arrogant about that word, claiming it as a nice way to talk about what happens in the family court system and what might happen in the media. But in fact, we're not actually confronting what the public want to happen and what the public mean by transparency. Because this is what I think the public on the whole think about the family justice system. It's a locked door. It's confidential. Proceedings, if they're published or reported, are contempts. 
and that is met with a system of outrage, which leads to scenes like this. And it was after coming through that analysis and in the course of preparing this lecture that I came to the realisation, which wasn't new to, I'm sure, to many of you, but certainly pulled me up sharp, that that is a situation which is not going to go away. The Pandora's box that is social media is now well and truly open. Public now don't give the courts automatic respect. The courts have to earn it, and they should earn it. And that means we can't simply stand still. We can't be like Canute simply trying to turn the tide back. We have got to engage with the dialogue that's happening. So what's a little bit more about the system in which we operate? Um, and not for the first time, may I remind you that the lecture notes which accompany this are much fuller than both this text and much fuller than the slides. And what I say now is no substitute for all the detail, cross-reference of the cases which you'll find in the notes. But you don't get them now because I really don't like people looking at the notes instead of listening to me. So you've got to stay until the end and then you can pick them up. Um, so what do we do? Well, in the family courts, we are balancing rights under Article 8, which is the right to respect for family life and privacy, against Article uh, 6 rights, the right to fair trial, and we're looking at freedom of expression under Article 10. So we're not oblivious to those competing issues, but they are in competition quite often. And then you have the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child at Article 6, 16. And then I think you need to engage with what the difference of dialogue is between the different levels of court. So family appeals in the Court of Appeal are expected to be in public. When we prepare our skeleton arguments, we are meant to prepare them in such a way that if the press require access to them, they are visible. In the main, I cannot do that in my cases because in order to appeal, I am having to give details of the case where I say the judge has got it so hideously wrong, which means I descend into detail. And I can't edit those documents on the basis they're going to go to the press because my primary responsibility is to my client for whom I'm acting, actively saying the judge was wrong. That's already attention as a barrister who wants to explain what I do because at the end, the individual right of my client for whom I'm acting trumps always the wider needs of those who may criticise or want to see how a decision has been arrived at. Hearings in the family division of the High Court, the County Court and the Magistrates Courts are generally heard in private because the case concerns children and the nature of the proceedings are confidential. Not for the first time you'll hear me remind you that the family courts are unique in only looking at past in order to decide if the future needs to be changed. Whereas, for example, a criminal court only looks at the past to decide if someone has or has not done something which is against the law. The family courts are not interested in punishment of those that they say have harmed the child. They investigate only to determine has harm happened, if so by who, and what needs to happen in order for that child not to be exposed to that harm in the future. So do you get that distinction? Uh, you need to get it because it's at the heart of why in the criminal justice system, which is about punishment and accountability, that we have the basic principle of open access to justice which is why we have the juries. Whereas in the family division, we are looking at the welfare of the child and we're looking at material which often isn't put in front of the jury because in the family division, we allow hearsay evidence in and we hear material that goes, looks at what's called a broad canvas. And if you can't grasp that distinction, you won't have an understanding about why we have different rules and regulations about disclosure and privacy in the family court than we do in a criminal court. Who can attend in the family cases? Well, if a court is said to be um, in chambers, then, as I've said, it's simply the parties and their lawyers. 
Um, accredited media reporters can attend. They can get their accredited badge. And not before long, I hope, the accredited bloggers can do so too. But being allowed into court doesn't mean to say that the reporter can actually report on what they are hearing and what they are seeing. What can they read? They go into court. What do they know about the quality of the arguments that they're hearing? Because they are not, in the main, given access to the documents necessary to inform their understanding. They can apply to the judge for material to be seen, and the judge will listen to that debate and will balance up competing rights to privacy and fair trial against confidentiality and damage and harm. But I can't think of a case I've been in where there has been both a request to have access to the documents and then permission granted. Under the family proceeding rules, a party, so a parent, can only disclose their confidential material to, for example, a therapist who is going to assist them with the treatment they need. They can't give their documents to the press. They can't give them to members of their family. They can't give them to supporters and um, those who may otherwise wish to assist them because they are confidential, because actually they relate to the child, even though necessarily they will touch upon that interrelationship between the child and the parent. What can be reported? Only basic facts. Unless the judge orders otherwise, then there are clear restrictions on what can come in the public domain. The judgment should be the starting point because that which is in the judgment is already going to be anonymized and is therefore the touchstone for legitimate and conscientious reporting. But the media, when they report these stories, very rarely attach to or comment on the judgment. They very rarely provide the material for the observer, the reader, to compare what the journalist says with what actually the court decided and on what basis. And that leads to the question about whether we have a balance, the right between transparency and privacy. And uh, that imbalance, as it was perceived, led to uh, Sir James Mumby, our president, saying he was determined back in 2013 to take steps to try to rebalance what he saw to be an imbalance. And one of the ways in which he did that was um, to make judgments, to issue effectively guidance that said that the judgments of certain levels of court should be published on Bailey. And that applied to high court, county courts. It didn't apply to magistrates' courts, which I shall come on to for the moment. Um, and he boldly included in those type of judgments which should be published all of those which would otherwise immediately have led the professionals to back away from thinking that they warranted reporting. So he was specific in saying that the judgments that should be reported on Bailey should include serious allegations such as sex and rape, um, allegations that they should include final care orders or supervision orders, placement orders or adoption orders, secure accommodation, deprivation of liberty cases, and then any issue, any application um, applying for a restraint upon publication of information. The category he took out of those were where the parties had gone into court on a consensual basis to negotiate. And he did so, I believe, for the very obvious reason, which is if parties go in to negotiate and they come to a solution in private through an agreed outcome, then one shouldn't interfere with that process by thinking it's going to be, um, it's going to be then put into the public domain. So that was a full and expansive list. He also decreed that the only elements of privacy which should be contained within the judgment should be those relating to the child and only so far as the family, if to identify the family would lead to identification of the child itself. 
So he specifically said that reporting on the inaccuracies, incompetencies of, for example, social workers or doctors should be something that's in the judgments because otherwise the public wouldn't understand when there have been mistakes made and given the state exercises such great powers over the individual, it's right that when things go wrong, they are there to be identified. So guidance was issued in 2014 and I'd just like to reflect on what differences that made. So before the guidance... Um, in terms of judgments being published, I took a snapshot. So 05 to 06, 44 judgments. Um, Jan 10 to Jan 11, 97. Jan 12 to Jan 13, 98. Given the number of cases we have going on in the United Kingdom, that seems a particularly astonishingly low number. So I am expecting to see a sea of reported cases in the next slide I take you because I want to see what's happened since the guidance was issued. We have this. January 16 to 17, we have 192 high court cases, 184 county court cases, giving the magic total of 376. January 17 to January 18, this lecture is very up to date. We have 182 High Court cases, 154 County Court, which is 336. Now, obviously, 376 is a massive improvement on 98. But is that really enough? And moreover, why do we have the dip between 376 and 336 just in the last year? I am really hoping that it's, that's not because there's been a rearguard action against the enemies of the people um, type of publicity that was being played out last year. So... Has it worked? Do the public now have a better understanding? Do the press have a greater willingness to understand about what goes on in the family division? Well, I don't think so. And I'm not saying that's anyone's fault. Judgments won't get published if, in fact, it's not possible to avoid identification through jigsaw analysis. Judgments won't get published if, for example, they contain material of such sensitivity that to put them on the Bailey um, would defeat wider objects. So, for example, ISIS and radicalism cases, there's a far fewer percentage of those on Bailey than other cases. And in addition, although it was laudable, as I say here, for that initiative to be made, Bailey is an enormously unwieldy tool to get access to and navigate. Unless you are prepared to spend a great deal of time deciding what your keywords are, assuming you know the website exists, assuming you've got the time to navigate it, then it is quite an impenetrable tool, which is why lawyers use it, and I suspect not very many others do. And the other missing ingredient from the category of cases that were to be reported were the magistrates. And the magistrates deal, they are the work engines of the family justice system. The cases that you hear about in the main happen in the bigger courts, certainly in the family division, sometimes in the county court, court of appeal, obviously. But very, very rarely in the magistrates' courts. And yet they deal with the most serious issues. At a level where they can take a child away for, um, from their parents and place them from adoption, but yet in the criminal courts they've got very limited powers of sentencing. Yet you ask any one of my clients what it's like to have your child forcibly taken away from you, an adoption order made and your legal, uh, biological and social links made with them, and they will tell you that is a life sentence. So we have very little information about how magistrates come to their decisions other than local reporting. And uh, there was a review undertaken by another um, person um, who commands huge respect, Julie Doughty, 
who looked to see whether or not these changes had made the difference they did. And what she identified is there was large discrepancies over the United Kingdom in terms of what was and wasn't reported. Some areas were, had such a small pocket of um, clients coming to their door that they really felt they couldn't publish anything because the school systems were so narrow that any publication would likely to lead to identification. So that's one huge area of the country wiped out from reported cases. And analysis of press coverage, um, what Julie found, was although there was on the whole less assertions there was secrecy and privacy, it hadn't really <coughs> achieved a sea change in opinion um, that the uh, president was hoping to achieve. So what are the restrictions? Just a quick reminder, I'm not going to go through this in details. Like I say, it's all there on the lectures. But effectively, what we are grappling with is a triumvirate of legislation which makes it enormously difficult to talk to the press and the public about what work we do. We've got the Administration of Justice Act, 1960, Section 12, the Children's Act, Section, 13, Section 97, Children and Young Persons Act, 1993. I'm not going to go through the consequences of them individually, but collectively, it makes it enormously difficult for any reporter who gets as far as identifying there's a case they want to report on to do so with the degree of detail they would want to do. And as every reporter will tell you, they need a story to pin a, 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 um, a press... Um, press material on. They need a name. Anonymized stories are very rarely interesting to the general members of the public. They want the human factor. And the effect of those combinations are effectively that journalists aren't really interested in walking through our family courts to find out what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I have to say, whereas I start off critical of that, looking at my daily work progress from going through the security gates to the course I'm going to be in, I can't blame them. How are they to know which cases they are to follow? Because cause list is, which is effectively the timetable for each court, what cases they are going to hear, look like they are 18th century documents. In care cases, you'll simply get initials and then in chambers, so there's nothing to indicate what the, what the content of it is. Unless you have had a tip-off as a member of the press, how are you going to know which of those buildings is worth going into, and then which of those multiple courts within those buildings is worth going in and then showing your card? How much time, given yourself employed in the main, are you going to have to wait just for that story which you think is going to break through all of the other litigation, all of the other social media news to make you the newspaper man or woman of the moment? I think it is really unrealistic to expect journalists to do that. And so, in reality, does the family justice system really welcome the press into their courts, although they're invited to? I think the answer is no. We don't make it easy to engage. And if we don't engage with the press, it means the press can't see the type of work that we do. It means that when there are stories that talk about injustice being delivered by judges, they haven't seen the huge amount of effort that goes into correcting uh, a local authority's case and cross-examining a local authority's case by legal aid solicitors and barristers who do their job for a vocation, not simply as a job with the title attached to it. So I don't think we have had enough change yet. And I do not think we are right to say there should not be change in the, in the future. What else do we have to take into account when we're looking at um, issues of uh, privacy and safeguarding? Again, uh, Dr. Julia Brophy um, argued very strongly against the barriers to confidentiality being broken down. And in a piece of work commissioned by the Association of Lawyers for Children and NIAS, 
um, in 2014, um, she compiled a group of young people um, who came up with some very powerful statements about why they believed not only was the balance not right, but it wasn't right because there should be more exposure by the press and the public to what was going on. In fact, they were saying there was far too much already. And in a foreword to the research material that Julia Brophy published, there was an incredibly powerful opening foreword from the commissioners of the United Kingdom and Wales, which had this to say. These young people raise credible doubts about the ability of the media to respect their privacy or to meet the public ed agenda, education agenda it claims to defend when it pleads for increased access. As research identifies issues of public confidence in family courts, can and should be addressed in ways that do not already put vulnerable children at risk. It's sad that we're having this discussion yet again, despite awareness over many years that there are other ways to let the public know how the family courts work. And they concluded, we need to look again at the wisdom and justice in a real sense of opening up the family courts to the media. And why was that the case? Well, some quotes. Uh, this was from one of the young people that was consulted. It's hard enough telling even your closest friends that you're in care. You don't need everyone knowing your story and knowing you're in care. When I was younger and people found out I was in care, I was bullied quite a lot because of it. And if people had known what actually happened, why I was put into care, that would have made it 10 times worse. So I don't think it's right without permission to put things out there, especially pictures. What about this? Children suffer a load of crap in their lives. They don't need more. They're already struggling because they have crappy parents. I'd hide myself in a room. Some children feel guilty about what their parents have done to them. They start feeling it's their fault. So again, when you are talking about secret courts, when you are talking about whose right the story belongs to, you need to listen to what the children have to say about what they fear. And I'll come back to the word fear in a moment. They continued, they said that the accusations that family courts are secret courts are disingenuous. They are private for good reason, and they said such accusations are a justification for press access to information it would be otherwise not achieve. They said all cases are serious for the child, not simply those that are cherry-picked over and turned into salacious stories. They said where change was necessary, they, there were other avenues to achieve it, and this, now this was brave to be said. They said the president should, shop, the president should shop, stop trying to please the media. Well, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, really. But, you know, if it takes a group of young children to tell the president he's got it wrong, then I think they're the best equipped to tell anyone as senior as that um, rather than uh, the rest of us. But the pendulum swings. You may think that while having said that, that effectively defeats the argument for greater transparency. I don't think it does. Because you need to remember when reading those powerful words that this was a small sample study of only 11 young people aged between 16 and 25 who were prepared for the consultation by being told what it was about. And effectively, it was not a control group. And moreover, um, when one was looking to see how they were um, being guided through their comments, in fairness, Dr. Brophy says it's effectively a consultation. It was more like a group discussion than, as you'd imagine, an individual research product, um, although the care with which they took to make sure it was open to scrutiny should be absolutely laudable. So it's difficult to know, isn't it, how these concerns of these 11 young people properly represent the thousands of children that have been involved in the child protection system this year, last year, the coming year. But I don't think we can ignore what they say. 
So what followed from that encounter was that Dr. Julia Brophy embarked upon an exercise, I think at the President's invitation, where she started to look, because of the concerns of the children in that uh, um, research project have identified, had identified about their identification, whether or not there was simply too much information out in the judgments. And she started going through effectively a red line exercise to say what should or shouldn't be included. But the president clarified in October 2016 that that, was, that did not have the status of law. That was simply a suggested work of proceeding. So we don't yet have any guidance about what is to be included, although it's right to say that the judges in which I speak are, and speak to are very clear that now they take enormous efforts to try to reduce the level of um, confidential information and identification detail in the judgments. But they do so in a way which is within their own time. There is no staff system to go through with a NINAR, NINAR tracker when not simply one word but two words but five words are put together enabling the family to be identified, the school to be identified and thence the child to be identified, which is the way that some other jurisdictions do it. And so we're asking a lot of our judges to try to get into the mind of an 11 or a 15-year-old or a journalist to see where the flaws within their judgments lie. So what about the arguments in favour of increasing access? And I turn to um, a highly respected journalist by the name of uh, Louise Tickle to be effectively the flag bearer, explaining why there should be greater publicity um, Louise Tickle delivered an astonishing lecture on March, 13th of March 2018, um, the second Bridget Lindley annual memorial lecture, her title being How Information Technology and Modern Communication Systems Are Affecting Journalism and Family Law. Now, that is a really, really long, long title. But um, the substance of what um, Louise said is here in a number of respects and in more detail in my lecture notes. She signposted a warning which was whatever the rights and wrongs of the matter, family members who get in touch with her and journalists are genuinely suffering. And she identified the risk that when she sees parents, when she reads those stories, she sees that there is an alert coming upwards from the deep, but getting close to the surface now, which tells me there is too much pain being endured to be contained. There's a tsunami approaching us and we need to engage with it. What she had to say in addition was my firm belief is there has to be more transparency in family law. As a it's a push directly against powerlessness that's imposed by the state when someone is not allowed to speak. I've yet to come across any function of the state that works better in secret. The law that prevents reporting of what goes on in family courts is meant to protect individual children's interests, but I think it's now working conveniently to hide something bad and sometimes even unlawful practice. Now, that is hard-hitting stuff. And if you remember, one of the paragraphs I brought up before under the President's guidance for publication of judgments is he very specifically did not say that the identities of those who make mistakes in the course of their public office should be protected from identification within the judgments. Only the children or those associated with the children are. So I think some of these points aren't necessarily valid, but the overwhelming impression by a journalist as respected as Louise Tickle is that we haven't got it right. And she's someone who does put her money with her mouth with. She does follow stories. She does engage with parents who are in deep pain and distress. And she knows what she's talking about when she says that her inbox is full of screams of pain. And we can't afford to ignore that. So... 
What happened after Louise uh, threw her erudite bombshell into the legal audience um, this year? Well, there was a remarkable degree of accord by those who were present at the conversation. It had James Mumby, it had uh, Mr Justice Keehan, it had Dr John Simmons, and there wasn't that much, that much disagreement that things weren't right in balance at the moment. A very long quote here, for which I apologise because you're going to have difficulty reading it. But I'm going to summarise effectively for you to say that this is what Mr Justice Keehan, one of our family division judges, a highly respected judge, had to say. First of all, one, I entirely agree with Louise, that the state needs to be held to account. And when local authorities, where individual social workers have got it wrong, it's important that's made known by the judges or by journalists. Secondly, I don't believe we got the balance right between transparency and keeping matters confidential. He wanted to avoid the word secret. He said there's been changes and improvements, one of which was allowing the journalists in. But he also went on to say that, in his view, there are steps that we can be taken to open up the workings of the family justice system to a wider field. His fourth point, though, is the one which I have made, which is where is the child's voice in all of this? Because if, effectively, you try to wipe out the Administration of Justice Act, Section 12, and its associated provisions under the Children Act. What happens to the story and experiences of the children who live with the consequences of reporting long after the case has ceased to be of any interest? One of the quotes I didn't read out to you from the um, Brophy study was the huge awareness by those young people who were interviewed that now there is no such thing as dead news. Once something's published on the web, it stays there. It does not go away. It's not like newspapers of the past where they're mushed and pulped and they're not seen again unless you go to your library and you get out the microfiche and try to work out what was going on in 1935 or thereabouts. The media contains material which, once put out, stays there for uh, there to be pulled down for the cloud to whoever wants it. It's one of the problems I identified for you in the previous lectures where I was talking about images of child abuse. And so we do have to be very careful about where we draw the balance because we can't keep the information in a bottle called confidential for very long and we can't release it without understanding the consequences that have for the children that we look after. On to three greats now of the legal world to see whether or not my take on the system is a novel one. Um, the first is Sir Nicholas Wall, and you can imagine my total terror when I realised that Sir Nicholas Wall, a former president of the Family Division, delivered the Grey's Inn reading at Gresham. Can you imagine what that's like, to realise that the most senior judge in the land was in this, in this room delivering a lecture for Gresham? That's somewhat terrifying, and quaked me in my boots. It made me wonder why I was here in the first place, but I carried on writing the lecture. Um, and he was a man ahead of his time, so he was saying in 2012 that um, there is an active debate and a divided one between those who are involved in the family justice system. And he, um, those who take the view that um, publicity involving the affairs of disadvantaged children is unwarranted, that the media are unashamedly sensationalist, quite apart from being anti-judge, and that children and our families are entitled to privacy on the one side, and then at the other end of the uh, debate, the noisy, loud, acrimonious debate, was the constant refrain that the family court practices operate under a practice of secret justice. And then another great, Lady Hale, president of the Supreme Court, she delivered the Nicholas War Memorial Lecture 
2018 Grey's Inn on the 10th of May. So that's very hot off the press. And you can see the lovely narrative here. I'm trying to give you a story arc. I've given you Sir Nicholas Wall doing Gresham. I'm giving you Lady Hale doing a memorial um, in recognition of Nicholas Wall. It's a very lovely, lovely feeling. You know, I hope you're feeling very warm and fluffy as you, as you listen to me now. Uh, what she did in an extremely erudite lecture, which I can't do justice to by trying to summarise it, is that she identified competing issues between openness and privacy. Neither article she was talking about has precedence over the other, and she was talking about the ultimate balancing act. And she then threw a grenade into my thinking, which I frankly wasn't equipped to deal with, which is that she identified that when thinking about the balance between privacy and publicity, don't forget that Article 8 isn't the only privacy-protecting game in town. Um, Lady Hale really down with the language there. There's also the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, bill, which comes into force as an act, an operative from the 25th of May. And what she identified was that the GDPR is there effectively to give you control over personal information. That's why you've had all these messages flooding into your inbox asking you to sign up, because it's meant to give you, the public, the individual choice and right to both control what information is about you on the web. And Lady Howe posed this question, what impact would that have on proceedings where everyone goes into them expecting them to be private? What happens to the child who, for example, starts to make allegations of sexual abuse and then goes into an ABE interview to give evidence which is true and accurate to the best of their ability to tell it, or so we are, that's the process under which we have the whole checks and balances exercise, would they give that story to someone they believe and know and trust if they thought that would be repeated outside? Would they come to give evidence in court if they thought that what they were telling the judge in the presence of the parties might have a life beyond the time span of the court case. So how private is the private information that we need to protect? Now, as I say, I don't know the answer to that. I didn't even think about GDPR when I was writing this lecture, and that is why I'm not a law lord. So there are others who are much more able than I to try to deal with that conundrum, and it's far too early in the GDPR history line for me to claim um, the words and wisdom of others, so I'm just going to let that float there. Um, and then to our new incoming president of the family division, because Sir James Mumby retires this summer, and we have in his place a remarkably erudite and able and empathetic uh, man by the name of um, Andrew McFarlane, and he delivered the Bridget Lindley Memorial Lecture in 2017. So he preceded um, uh, Louise Tickle. And amongst other things, he identified that he had been told from a range of sources and had seen from his own exposure to a daily basis of litigants in person seeking to appeal childcare decisions and that there was a growing mistrust by parents towards childcare lawyers and, and judges. And that, he said, was deeply worrying and needs to be addressed if it's not to lead to yet more parents disengaging from working with professionals and the process in a way which can only increase... Um, their interests rather than damaging them. Because if a parent starts to believe Dr. Google or Dr. Wikipedia or their friend down at the road or their Facebook friends or their Twitter feeds about what they need to do in order to persuade the judge they um, are safe parents to have their children back, the likelihood is that that will not be good advice. 
not because people aren't well-meaning, but because they don't have access to the material to give the best informed decisions, and because we have a plethora of voices who chime into the subject, some with more gusto than intelligence. So we do need to have a better level of trust, and we need to make sure that level of trust between client, barrister, and judge is enhanced rather than diminished by the debate we are having. So the other point to bring to your attention, and it's not a plug for a book, although it does happen to be a pretty remarkable book, is Transparency in the Family Courts, Publicity and Privacy in Practice, and Lord Justice McFarlane wrote the foreword to it. Um, and I'm not going to say more of the detail because I'll leave it to you, but it, it takes you to what my view was, what my view was and what it is now. And I was still grappling with this conundrum between privacy and confidentiality when I was writing this part of the sentence. So I looked to Sarah Fillimore, another really experienced barrister, a very um, uh, prolific uh, blogger, and someone also a contributor to the Transparency Project. And the remarkable degree of information there is on the web means that you can afford not to go through these debates in private. You can choose and select, and you can work with people you would never have a day-to-day -day relationship with by claiming all that knowledge that's out there on the web, because people are incredibly generous. Um, what uh, Ms. Fullermore had to say is that transparency is so much more than allowing passive public scrutiny of processes and outcomes. We must generate a far greater understanding amongst the public about what is behind the decisions being made. This becomes an increasingly urgent project as distrust between professionals and parents apparently hardens and increases, and I echo that. So where to? Okay, 11 young people. But you, I saw from your faces, were shocked by what they had to say. I do not think it is right to dismiss those views of uh, those 11 people, narrow though they were, simply because they were small in number. And what I've noticed as I've been going through all the research on legal journals is that the Dr. Brophy material has almost become um, a leaf motif for the tension between those who want greater privacy and those who want less. And rather than engaging with what's contained within it, those who say there should be greater transparency say, oh, it's only 11 children. And what's more, they're only identifying the potential for risk of harm, whether there was harm caused. So with such a small sample base, that research project simply isn't legitimate. Whereas those who support the Bridget Lindley uh, research say, how can we turn our voice and close our eyes and ears to the voices of those 11 children? Clearly what we need to do is turn the clock back. The president was wrong. We need to make sure there's less scrutiny, more confidentiality, because we've gone too far already. Whereas I think, in fact, that, that shows that there is not the type of debate that we need to be having about this subject. Because I think that if those children's voices were representative, we don't know if they were or not. There does need to be a proper, legitimate, whole-scale survey of what children want to get out of their experiences in court, given they've got absolutely no choice that they're in them, and what they fear most about being in that process. So it's not a reason to dismiss what's being said. It's a reason to say we need to take it further. Ultimately, change, I believe, has to happen, because there is a huge danger that ill-informed and hostile public opinion could infect the word, and I use that word really deliberately, that could infect the work of the family courts, and we can't ignore that. Action has to be taken by those who are prepared to participate respectfully in a constructive dialogue 
between court users before the debate is ambushed, another deliberate word, by those who are fueled by anger rather than reason as their motivation. Quite simply, we cannot afford to allow the family court to turn into a war zone because that is an image about what happens when we don't engage. Now, for my part, like I say, I'd gone on a journey of challenge um, through the course of preparing this lecture. And I started to think what my discipline could gain by having an involved press listening in and understanding the work we do. One of the first things was, I think if they came into our courts, they would be astonished about the level of debate that happens. When I stand beside my colleagues and I am cross-examining a paediatrician, a pathologist, a histopathologist, a psychiatrist, a neuropathologist, a radiologist, a neuroradiologist, a neurosurgeon, then I am stepping into a field about which I have only learnt the information because I have expended the last quarter decade trying to acquire knowledge to do the best I can for the parents I represent. And I expect no less of the barristers who stand beside me and behind me. The quality of the expert evidence that is called in the family division to try to understand if a child who has died has died as a result of physical injury or as some genetic cause mimicking abuse knows no bound. I have slept on average about eight hours this week and no more because I'm engaged in a trial. Because my sleep is an optional extra, but for the expert I'm cross-examining the next day or the parent I'm representing, there's no second chance. And I'm not alone in doing that. And I think if the press came in to see the quality of the evidence that we call and challenge, if they saw the sheer breadth of integrity that's marshaled by the solicitors, by the barristers, by the social workers, and by the judge in determining it, then respect will properly be earned. Secondly, I think that when mistakes are made, the press are there to make sure those mistakes are, become known and are accountable. Because if you think about what happened in Rotherham, and you remember that's a lecture I gave not too long ago, then we need the press to be vigilant, to bring matters to our attention that we are too busy or too ignorant or too uninvolved or too disinterested to bring up and bring to the public attention because the media have enormous power. They have the power to make stories. They have the power to break stories. And if we allow them in, if we have a proper respectful dispute, then that means when stories start kicking off in social media that are fueled like a Pavlovian response, to say that there is nothing right about what we do in the family justice system, then we have committed, knowledgeable members of the press who will be able to take a position, a view, on whether or not those criticisms are warranted and which side they come down on that debate. What else do we gain, potentially, by having the press involved? Well, I think that when judges misbehave, there is a role for the press to be there. The family courts are unique in meaning the only people in courts are the parents and the professionals, but we know of instances where judges abuse and misuse their power and when they transgress and make judgments which are, whilst not appealable because they're applying the law and the facts correctly, nonetheless in what they say, the evidence has changed shape by nature of their interventions in court. Now, would they behave in that way if members of the press were there? What else should there be reason for? Well, given that what's happening at the criminal bar at the hard edge in terms of the deprivation of access to legally funded criminal representation, the family bar won't be uh, uh, very far behind. And I would really like the expertise of the likes of Louise Tickle and Emily Duggan 
on my side because they understand the world in which we're working and when the government is contemplating taking more resources away from our service and away from the vulnerable people we'd represent. And how can we involve them in that debate if they don't know what we do? But fundamentally, the reason why I think that we have to have this public debate is because we cannot turn the tide back. We cannot have this level of mistrust between the public. We cannot afford to lose the public and the press in the valuable debate that we have because ultimately we have to make the right decisions for the children that are the subject of these proceedings and we have to have those decisions respected because there are a large number of children that are coming before our courts and sometimes for very, very good reason. And that needs to be understood. So having started off almost with a alert response to thinking that the balance was just about okay in terms of press access to the workings of the family justice system, I've had to really struggle to understand why we are so protectionist when we cannot afford to be quite so confident that we know it all and the way we have done it so far is the right way to proceed because social media is not going to go away. And if we do the job we do because we want to do the best job for our clients and I want to be the voice that they listen to, I don't want to be the voice where I have to spend a half an hour declaiming and decrying and re-explaining what they've learned before I start to get to the heart of the matter about what we can do to help understand what's happened to their child and what they can do to get their child back. That's not fair on that parent. And there won't be very many lawyers that are carrying on being prepared to do that if, in fact, the work they do is vilified through misinformed and ill-informed public argument, which doesn't actually engage with the integrity of the work we do. So a hard learning core uh, for me, a, uh, a, a lecture to delve into, which took far more time than I had expected because the arguments were so nuanced. And um, I have talked about Twitter. I've talked about the access to public information. And the one thing I would like to do, as I have done in my lecture notes, as do, is to give public thanks to these people because they have been entirely unhesitating in the assistance they have given to me over the course of many a year as I bounced issues through. And that's a roll call of names, and by no means is it everyone I should possibly say in connection with the assistance I've been given. And they don't even know they've given it to me. I've just been tagging them and chasing them and looking at their articles and reading their books and picking and choosing because there's no point reinventing the wheel when there are others who trod this path before me who have come to the conclusions they've done with the research they have, then I think that's a very good library for me to dip into. So thank you very much to those people. So, and then finally, thank you very much to all of you for coming along tonight. Um, you have listened with a huge degree of attention. I don't know what the web is doing. Hello, everyone on the web. Um, but um, thank you for your attention and engagement. And if anyone has any questions, I'll take them now.